the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're recording in front of a live audience in Irish Live's headquarters in Lower Abbey Street in Dublin. We put together a panel of experts to discuss the pensions time bomb in Ireland and the government's proposed solution called auto-enrolment. Our panel comprises David Harney, Chief Executive of the Irish Life Group, Chris Johns, a veteran investment manager and Irish Times columnist, and Dr. Laura Bambrick, Social Affairs Officer with ICTU. We also have a number of pensions experts in our audience, including my colleagues Dominic Coyle and Fiona Redden, who both regularly write about this topic, and we'll hear from them a little later on, hopefully. But first, a few statistics just to depress you, uh, uh, to get things started. Just 35% of private sector workers are making pension provision in Ireland. In the UK, where auto-enrolment auto is already in place, the figure is 78%. There are currently five persons of working age for each person aged 65 and over in Ireland, but that figure will reduce to just two by 2050. We all know we're all living longer and health costs are rising. From March, the full contributory state pension will be €243 Euro or thereabouts per week. That's about 12600 a year, which is hardly enough to support yourself in this boom era. And there's a pensions gender gap of 32%, more than twice the pay gap that exists between men and women. And according to Irish Life, some 29% of people say they never get around to starting a pension. Now, to help resolve this issue, the government last year proposed the scheme of auto-enrolment. Workers between the ages of 23 and 60 who earn more than 20000 a year and who don't already have a workplace pension will be automatically signed up for the scheme. Employee contributions will amount to up to 6% with similar contributions from employers and the state would contribute €1 Euro for every three paid in by the member. So it's an effective 25% contribution. Now that scheme has divided opinion, but one man who I suspect is very much in favour of it is David Harney, the Group Chief Executive of Irish Life. Uh, what's not to like about this plan for you guys, David? Um, well, it's it's not a plan for Irish life. Like it's a it's a plan for Ireland in general. Um, as you said, there is a pensions time bomb, and you know there's only thirty five percent of the working population that are mm. saving for retirement at the moment. So, I think the reason we're so positive about it is just what it could do to tackle that problem uh, over the long term. Well, why auto enrolment? Um, well, I think what we see just from our own experience is there's very few people that get to retirement that are disappointed that they didn't save for retirement. Uh, the problem is just a lot of people don't get around to doing it. Um, a lot of it is just pressures in day-to-day -day life and starting a pension is an easy thing to put off. So, you know, When did you start your pension, by the way? Uh, I started when I was 17. 17? Oh, that's very impressive. But of course you're an actuary, so... Well, no, I started at 17 because I was auto-enrolled into the Irish Life uh, scheme. So that's the reason pensions was not what I was thinking about at 17. So, you know, uh, that's auto-enrollment works. It just tackles that problem of pro procrastination. So, yeah. yeah. Just explain to us how it works, because people will be automatically opted in, hence the auto-enrollment. But you can opt out. You, yeah, you, you'll be automatically... Uh, put into the scheme um, you can after a period of time then come out I think you have to stay in for a number of months that'll come out in the final uh, design if you do come out you'll be left out uh, the government does plan to come back and have a second go so they will re-enroll you again after a number of years um, but it is an auto-enrollment scheme so you know if people don't want to participate in to have that option Okay so let's pretend I'm a private sector worker I don't have a workplace pension sell auto-enrollment to me Um. I think it's sell all enrollment to you. It's it's going to start you 
on the savings habit, um, you will build up a, a, a pot of money uh, over your working life that will be in addition to the state pension that you'll receive. Um, you don't need to do anything. You just need to come to work every day. Um, it'll be automatically taken out of your salary every month. You don't have to make any investment decisions and there'll be default funds that are there. I suppose you don't have to take any action. Um, you know that this is a scheme that's been set up by the government. You know that it's well designed. Um, you know that it has all the benefits yeah. of scale. Well, okay, you know okay. The National Children's money. Hospital uh, and other projects uh, by government uh, not particularly well designed. But I'm, t- I'm 23, uh, I wish. But I'm 23, um, and, you know, I want to party. I want to spend my money on fun things. I don't want to be worrying about retirement. Why should I be worrying about retirement? Yeah, you look well for a 23, Karen. So, um, um, at 23, you don't... I, I think the beauty about all 23-year-olds don't worry about retirement. Um, you know, as I said, I was lucky uh, to start with an employer that just started people in the pension scheme, so I never thought about it. Um, just the deductions came out of my salary every month and they built up over time. So, you know, the beauty of this scheme is we're not trying to convince 23-year-olds to save for retirement. Um, they will just automatically get into that saving habit when they join the workplace, and that, that's the way to do it. Okay, Laura Bambrick, um, you're with ICTU, uh, Congress of Trade Unions, for those who don't know, and you represent workers' interests, obviously. Uh, is this a good deal for workers? Well, as you said yourself, there, um, less than half of all workers have a supplementary pension. Um, so as the state pension is paid at a flat rate, it's not income-related, anybody without a second-tier pension is going to face a considerable drop in their living standards once they reach retirement. So auto-enrolment is going to address that problem of uh, the lack of coverage in second-tier pensions. Um, We're very late, Ireland as a country, coming to auto-enrolment. We've seen it in lots of other countries, but especially we've seen it in Australia, the UK and New Zealand. And what's really important about these countries is they have very similar pension landscape to what we have in Ireland. So we know that it works And we can learn, because we're a late developer coming to this, we can learn from the design features that they have done that have subsequently, they've had to tweak along the way or they have worked really well. We can factor that into our our pension scheme. So Congress do welcome, in principle, this move to auto-enrolment. And it is about getting people investing in and invested in their pension early. The uh, former Secretary General of Congress, David Begg, now the chair of the pension authorities, he has a great saying. He says, pensions is a boring topic to anyone under 40. At 50, the topic becomes mildly interesting. And at 60, it's riveting. But sadly, by the time you get to 60, it's too late to undo the uh, damage from this inertia. So auto-enrolment is going to be that significant step to getting people thinking about their pension. Now, unlike what government are proposing, they're proposing a quasi-mandatory where you will have this limited window to opt out. Congress are proposing that we make it mandatory. That we make it mandatory, but we also include uh, the low-paid so no income threshold. We include self-employed workers. And while that might be music to David's ears, because that's naturally increasing the population that's going to be captured by auto-enrolment, what Congress are looking for is one service provider 
and that will be a public fund. Right, okay. Now, if you're earning 20 grand a year, the threshold is 20,000 euros a year. Again, a bit like the young person, you might be saying, well, hold on a second, I have so many calls in my money at the minute in terms of rent, in terms of public transport, in terms of food, whatever it might be, children, etc. I can't afford to put 6% of my salary into this scheme every year. Well, a couple of things there. So Congress are saying below 20,000, the workers' contribution would be graduated. So it would be only 1% for every 5,000 that you're earning. But your employer will continue to make the full employer uh, contribution and the state's theirs. The second point to it is just because somebody is poor within their working life doesn't mean that they should should be poor in their old age. So our argument would be that you can't afford not to have a second tier pension. So people that are opting out under the uh, government scheme, there won't be an employer contribution and there won't be a state contribution. So if we have a lower worker contribution for those that are earning at a low pay, it will, uh, it will provide them with an income uh, later on. And you did mention in your introduction that we do have a gender pensions gap. Um, by introducing an income, a lower income limit, that's not going to do anything to address that. But if we remove that and we bring in part-time workers, those workers who will be working multiple jobs, low-paying jobs, people on um, informal contracts, it by default will help address the gender pay gap. So we do think it can be designed. And if we look at the UK at the moment, they're currently looking to, uh, to remove their lower income uh, threshold with much difficulty. So as I mentioned, we're very late coming to the game of auto-enrolment. We can learn from what other countries did and what they did wrong and go in and do it right from the start. And one of the things they did wrong in the UK, they're learning much to their regret, was introducing a lower income earnings. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Chris John's one option available to the government, of course, would be to increase the state pension. Uh, which I mentioned is about is going to be about twelve thousand six hundred or thereabouts from March onwards. Why not do that? Too expensive. Um, we talked earlier on about how difficult it is selling uh, the idea of taking out a pension to to a young person. And the chief executive of Irish Life, everything that he said was absolutely one hundred percent accurate. But it's not an, it's not a grabbing proposition when you try to sell a young person a pension. The one thing that would grab their attention would be that to simply state that if they think they're going to get 12 and a half grand in real terms equivalent in 40 years' time, then we'll retire. Dream on. Because unless something like this is done, unless some other changes are made, it's quite possible that the state pension ain't going to be paid to them because we, we, the taxpayer won't be standing over the promises that are being made to them now. So the idea of increasing something that's already bust simply doesn't add up. We've heard that a lot over uh, the last number of decades, and yet the state pension continues to exist. And in fact, we paid it when we were bust in the 80s and, you know, post-2008, we were 
We found the money. For a brief number of years. Absolutely. Um, and the demographics really help there. You know, we are still, in our own terms and relative to a lot of other countries, a very young country, so that we still have enough taxpayers paying over that money. Because this is, always, but this is an intergenerational bargain, that today's taxpayers pay today's generation of pensioners in the expectation that when they become pensioners, f- a future generation of taxpayers is going to be there and willing to pay their pensions. Because there's no pot, there's no fund, it's all pay-as-you-go, as we know, and eventually the demographics are going to switch. We are going to be, just like a lot of other countries are already, we are going to get old, and that ratio is going to change, that dependency ratio is going to change dramatically against us. And when that happens, that's when we run out of money and run into these problems, when that intergenerational bargain will be questioned. And there will be a generation of taxpayers out there sooner or later that says, we don't want to pay these pensions. You live in the UK. I mean, from your perspective, has auto-enrollment worked in the UK? Up to a point. Um, I, I do think generally it's a good idea. Um, the, the, ma- the main reason why I think it's, it, it, it has to be made to work is that in various ways we've been trying to sell this idea of taking out a pension to people for decades now. And basically, they don't do it. And there are lots of reasons for that. We've heard some of them. When people are young, they don't earn much money. Um, there are too many other things to think about. But the other reasons are that they're too important and too complicated to be left to the individual. It's a bit like seatbelts. We have to legislate, and people have to have a financial seatbelt for their old age called a pension. We know that people taking out private pensions doesn't happen to the extent that it needs to, and therefore, you know, with this decades of experience, for all the reasons that we know that we can't sell pensions to people, they need to be forced to do it. So whatever way you do it, whether it's a UK system or learning from all the different models around the world, it has to be done. Now, back in the good old days, uh, we used to have defined benefit schemes, which gave you a defined benefit at the end of your working life into retirement. And in the private sector, good companies, including the likes of the Irish Times, uh, would would pay a defined would offer defined benefit schemes as part of their package. Uh, unfortunately, it's gone to the Irish Times. It's gone, uh, you know, as it on, has in many on the way of the flood uh, in a lot of uh, companies. But there's no guarantee, is there? Uh, uh, you know, in this new sort of era of defined contribution that when you actually get to retirement, the fund that will be awaiting you, even if you're signed up automatically, that the fund that awaits you will, will carry you through retirement. There's no guarantees. Death and taxes are the only two guarantees, as we know. That's the old cliche. The defined uh, benefit model has died for the same reason that the state pension model is at risk, in that eventually the companies discovered that the liabilities that they built up over through many years, they couldn't meet them. And so we've had in the extreme examples of companies going bust because of their pension liabilities, companies going bust, typically overseas, not here, to avoid their pension liabilities. And so companies decided that they couldn't afford them. That was, that was in, a, in a way, a socialization of pension risk, admittedly at the company level, and the pendulum has swung all the way now towards the individual, which is the defined contribution model. And we're finding, frankly, that that doesn't work very well, precisely because of the the reasons that you allude to there, which is that you spend your entire life not knowing what you're going to get in retirement and worrying about things like investment risk, having to listen to jargon like default funds, and people just say, no, I can't be bothered with all of that stuff. So this move to auto-enrollment is really a swing of the pendulum which has swung from defined benefit to defined contribution back to somewhere in the middle, which essentially socializes this risk, which society does face because if there are lots of poor people in old age, everybody has to pick up the tab to look after them, healthcare, housing, and all of the rest. So it, it, it's, it's an absolutely essential thing to do. Uh, David, while Irish life is broadly in favor of this plan, um, you're not enamored with certain elements of it. 
for example, the government's contribution, uh, one euro for every three paid in by the member, sounds great in paper, and I guess good for uh, the low-paid workers, but if you're a higher earner, you're getting a much better uh, tax break at the minute. You're, you're basically able to write out, what, 40% against tax? Um, no, like we're very in favour of the overall scheme and we're also in favour of the government's approach um, just when it comes to tax relief. So they're not looking to replace uh, the existing system. So that carries on for existing schemes that are there. Um, like in fairness, the government do have a problem to solve when it comes to uh, lower paid people because just a lot of people on lower income don't pay any income tax. So the fact that the system is paid up as as deferral of income tax, that means there isn't that uh, benefit there for the lower paid. So like we fully acknowledge that something has to be done on that. Um, the government's answer to that is the one in three proposal and that does solve it. Um, it does create some other problems then in differences with the current system and maybe arbitrage in some people. So it, it potentially introduces some complexity. So, so we have some suggestions on alternatives to that, but I wouldn't take that as we have problems with the system. We fully understand what the government are trying to do there. Okay, what about the fees um, that are being talked about? Uh, government suggesting that the fees be capped for your industry, be capped at 0.5%? Um, yeah, the government are suggesting that fees are being capped and they're also being very ambitious um, on their 0.5%. Like in general, I support their ambition on, on the overall scheme. Like what they're trying to do here is build... Well, you don't really because you've suggested 075 to 1%, haven't you? Um, yeah, we think... 0.5 is 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 very ambitious. Uh, we've suggested a, a higher target. Um, even 0.75, I think, would still put it at a, the best value for money scheme. Um, you know, benchmarked globally against the others. So UK is 0.75, is it? The UK is 0.75 now. After being a number of years in existence, it started off at uh, over one percent, um, which charges on contributions as well for ten years. So yeah, it started off probably at over double what we plan to start off at. Laura, where does ICTU stand on those proposed fees? Well, um, as I mentioned, our first preference is that the fund be managed by a public fund, and we, we make mention to the NTMA. But our analysis of the international experience would show that not-for-profit master trusts deliver better for members than commercial uh, master trusts. And in many incidents internationally, those not-for-profit master trusts are run by trade unions. And they're run by trade unions who, um, who commission out the day-to-day -day administration and the investment management to commercial providers. Um, so there, there, could be, uh, there could be room in this auto-enrollment market for both of us, David. So, um, so, so yes, fees... It would be quite an alliance, wouldn't it? Well, well, we are at the, the, the very early stages of looking at whether Congress should enter the pension service uh, market with an eye just on auto-enrollment. Uh, we would see it as remiss of us not to give it some serious con uh, consideration given what's at stake for workers. There's going to be very quickly very substantial sums of money. And the difference between a point five percentage uh, management fee and point seven five is significant amounts of money. So that's the space we're in at the moment. Chris Johns wants to get into this. Chris, you'd know a thing or two about management fees having working having worked yeah. in the investment management industry for many, yeah. many years. And I'm not quite poacher turn gamekeeper because I still have some involvement in the pension fund industry. So um I'm not talking about my own involvement. I'm certainly not talking about 
our hosts here this evening. But one of the reasons why people are turned off pensions is because of the complexity. And we're very good at complexity because once we've got it, we can hide high fee structures behind it. And the pensions industry, with honorable exceptions, as I do stress, for many years has been a fee extraction industry hidden behind complexity. And for this kind of scheme, that has to be stripped away. I'm not even convinced basis points is the way forward, actually. I mean, you could devise, I could devise for you here tonight a very good passive investment strategy for this fund that would charge a euro amount per year rather than a basis point. I don't see why, you know, it has to be a percentage of the pot. I think that's how radical you could potentially be when it comes to fees for a public sector fund. But I would say who manages it and the ring fencing put around it is also going to be as important because we saw what happened to the last state pension fund here. It was nicked off the pensioners to bail out the banks. That, can't, that sort of thing cannot be allowed to happen again. And the moment any vested interest gets the hand on this money, as night will follow day, somebody will do something silly with it. So it has to be ring-fenced, and possibly even via the Constitution, to say that this is the way it's going to be managed, and the only people that can ever benefit from it are the people of Ireland via their pensions, not through bailing out any bust industry or any future government that does anything stupid. So I think there are lots of issues around fees and ring-fencing. Yeah, sure. You're referring to the National Pension Reserve Fund, which I think was about $22 billion or, or thereabouts at the time of the uh, crash in 2008 and was raided in large part um, to save the banks. Um, but that was designed really to pay for public sector pensions, wasn't it? Originally by Charlie McCreevy. That was uh, this, a large part. We're not talking about an ultra-enrollment fund. This was a Charlie McCreevy initiative that was essentially designed to pay in a vague sort of way future state pension commitments. It wasn't going to be on top of the state pension, but it was you know, a reasonable first stab at trying to think about how we fund future state pensions. Because all of that stuff that we talked about earlier on, the arithmetic was just as real back then, that the future liability was in, at risk of bankrupting the state without there being some funds there to pay for it. So he made a stab at doing it. We know how it turned out. Yeah, David, well, you've heard from Chris there. Chris is experienced in investment marks. He says there's no need for a percentage fee. Uh, well, I think the two points... Chris Hermakin is like one, it has to be designed to be efficient and everybody shares uh, that that aspiration. Um I think the second point was around ring fencing ring fencing. So I think it's it's important that people have visibility into their accounts and that see their money building up over time and to feel ownership of that. Um, I suppose one of the dangers with a state run fund is that that people won't have that, you know. So that that's why the suggestion is that why not? Um I suppose if it's if it's run sort of privately the money is owned privately, so people have ownership of accounts. They can change investment managers. Um, they know the government can't get their hands on that money in the in the event of a crisis, um, like happened in, in 2008. Now, there is also talk of limiting the number of providers um, for this scheme, isn't there? Well, there's the proposal is to start off with four providers. Mm. And again, I suppose one of the ambitions is to get scale so that it can be done as efficiently and cheaply as possible. I'm the government may add to that over time, but the, the goal is to start off with four providers. How many in the UK? Um, there isn't a limit on the number of providers in the UK, so there's a system, Nest, which is there if anybody wants it. So that's a that's a sort of single base provider if you want, but then there are many other providers in addition to Nest. Chris, is it a good idea to limit it to four? I'm not convinced. Um, I think that people find this whole area so difficult. If you, if you can start asking people to choose between different strategies, between different fund managers, 
between different cost structures, between different investment strategies. You run into all of the problems of complexity that have led us here in the first place. Keep it very, very simple. I would have, frankly, just one default investment strategy depending on your age. And, and the industry is very good at designing this kind of thing, that, that there's a certain risk profile. I'm going to start talking jargon again that just people's eyes glaze over. But the younger you are, the more equities you have, and the older you are, the more bonds you have. It's very simple, can be designed very efficiently. And you don't need a lot of investment managers to do that for you. I mean, if you do it properly, you could just do it with one. David? You could do it with one, um, but I think I'd probably argue that people, I think most people will go into defaults that are set up. You could do it with one, but I think it's important people have some sense of choice or some sense of options around it, um, you know, so people, people like that. Chris, the world has been turned upside down in the past 10 years, so it must be said, and there's damn all return from cash and bonds, or has been uh, over the, the last while. So putting people into those kind of defaults uh, positions, even if they're coming close to retirement, um, could be dangerous, no? Investment is a, a very difficult game. It's very easy to make it a very complicated, difficult game. Um, and it could well be that the last few years are the model for going forward, which is that we live in a very low returns world, and it would be wrong to set up too high expectations for what people can expect by way of investment return. But it might not be like that, because we're talking about the future. And um, it's inherently unknowable. Don't get involved in the forecasting game. Build this fund on very conservative assumptions about what people are likely to get. Low returns is probably the environment that we're in. That's our best guess. And you can devise simple strategies around that to allow people to, to have a better, better retirement than they would otherwise would have. But it must be very careful to make the right promises to people. You know, um, and this, again, where the industry has in the past fallen down. It, it makes silly promises to people. It, we, we produce all sorts of fancy graphs and charts to say that this is the sum of money that you're going to get. and you get, Then we ask people all sorts of stupid questions like, when do you think you're going to die? And we wonder why people get turned off the pension industry. Um, you can do this very simply. You can do it very efficiently. And you can do it in a way that people can sleep at night. This should be the objective. People can sleep at night about their old age. Don't be more ambitious than that. Laura, people generally speaking don't like being told what to do by whomever, uh, particularly by government. So how do you sell this to the workers, particularly the low-paid workers that ICTU represents? Well, again, we're designing it. The, the, our response to the consultation was designed in such a way that it will be a very small contribution by the worker. And if the employer and state contributions stay at the, at the expected 6% from the employer and one euro for every three put in, we think that it will be easier to sell when you can see what for every one euro you put in what you get back and um, there is built into the design of the straw man the public or uh, the the department's consultation on it that it will be very visible for the individual to see their their pension pot grow so we do think there's a lot of behavioral economics that are built into it and again going back to we really have the benefit of coming to auto enrollment very late in the day that we know what works what doesn't work and one of the things that doesn't work is people won't make choices between who they, they want as their service provider and what kind of fund they want. It will go into this carousel where people will go onto it, will be into a default scheme. And we have to design that default scheme that we know between 
age X and X, you will go into this sort of investment fund, then you'll move into the next one so that you can be, uh, the, the state or the provider can do as much of the heavy lifting as the individual won't because we clearly know they won't do it themselves. David, if the government does press ahead with auto-enrolment, what happens to the old age pension as we know it now? Um, well, the, the government's aspiration is that continues on. So this is not a replacement of the state uh, age pension. Like Chris rightly points out, there's challenges to the sustainability of that. Um, but this is not to replace the state age pension. It's in addition to it. And I think, you know, in, in essence, what we're trying to do here is like it's it's a time bomb, as you called it um, at the start. But we do have we, we have generations to solve this problem and the problem will be solved over generations. Like in essence, what we're trying to do is build up wealth uh, for people that that just doesn't happen. So it's low paid workers. It's a lot of female workers. Um, so we're trying to encourage savings there and they will build up wealth over a generation. That money then is in addition to the state pension that's there at the moment. Now, workers will have the option of opting out if they so wish. They'll have to do it themselves. Otherwise, yeah. they're automatically opted in. What's your expectation as to how many workers might actually do that? Um, the hope would be that it would be less than ten uh, percent, and that that's the experience in other in other countries. It does depend on some of the design, but yeah, certainly the goal of government would be that ninety percent of people would would stay in the scheme. And is that the same, let's say, for Irish nationals versus foreign nationals? Because I think roughly one in six of the population is foreign national now. Um, yeah, one in six of the uh, of well, one in six of of people living in Ireland have been born outside of Ireland. Um, like 19% of Irish Life customers have been born outside of Ireland. So I think, um, you know, people that are born outside of Ireland are, are no different than people are born in Ireland. Well, no, of course not, but they might not see their long-term futures in Ireland. So they might say, nah, I don't really want to be part of this game. I'll be gone in five or six years. Yeah, we don't really see that in Irish Life because the, the percentages are the same, you know. So, so we have a very high representation of people that were born outside of Ireland. So it doesn't suggest to me that their motivations are, are any different. Okay, Laura, I'm sure ICTU has done some research on this. Which other countries do this well? Um, it depends on what part of the design feature you're looking. So um, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking at Australia, New Zealand and the UK because they're our closest comparison to the pension scheme we already have in place. So um, it depends on what part of the, of the opt-out um, or, or the model that you're looking for. So you mentioned there about um, would um, people that are in the country for a few years be more likely to opt out than people that have been born here. Um, one of the features that has to be decided in is will people who remain um, in, in the pension auto-enrolled, will they have early access to the funds. And, and one of the reasoning around that is if somebody from outside the country or Irish born decides to emigrate, can they close their account and take their money? So looking at New Zealand, New Zealand gives access to people for a whole range. And one of the big things is for first time buyers. So we can already see pressure coming on that, oh, if auto enrollment uh, happens, first-time buyers should have access to a chunk of their pension pot for the 10% of, their, um, of the mortgage. But we can look at New Zealand, and the only impact that had 
was to increase the prices of houses to the benefit of the seller and not the buyer. So Congress is looking at that and is saying that there should be no early access to auto enrolment funds, that you're in, you're locked in, and you get it at retirement age. Chris? I agree uh, totally that um, early access is a bad idea because it'll create distortions. It'll be an incentive during bad times to emigrate. Um, it'll be an incentive to emigrate for a short period of time and come back. Um, and it should also be mandatory, no opt-out. Um, this is something that we're all, we should all, we should, you know, there's not enough things around where, that we are all in together these days in this, these weird politi- political times that we live in. But this, as I say, this, to me, this is like, you know, forcing people to drive on the left. Um, this is something that we should all be made to do because collectively, you know, we all benefit and individually we all benefit. It's very important that, you know, it's, it's, the take-up rate has to be high and I would just make it mandatory. Fiona Redden uh, joins us in the audience uh, from the Irish Times. Fiona, you write a lot about uh, mortgages and first-time buyers. What do you think about this idea that maybe first-time buyers should be allowed to dip into their pension pot to help fund their deposits? Hi, yeah. Um, I am actually in favour of it. And, I mean, Laura's point that is the only impact it had was to raise house prices. I'm not sure how you could draw that inference and be 100% accurate on that in New Zealand. I do know it's very popular in New Zealand that plenty of people do access their funds earlier, get money out to buy a house. And I think typically most people would prefer to have a house maybe than a pension because if you don't have a house and a pension, where are you going to live when you're retired? And the big factor perhaps is that it can incentivize you to save. If, if you're going to it and you're 23, you're told you, can't, you can either do this and that takes all your spare cash You'll never buy your own home. Whereas if you go into it, you can actually save for your home as well as your pension. I think that could be really appealing to people and make people stay in it rather than opt out after six months or other points. Laura? Well, I suppose the uh, key policy objective to auto-enrolment is income adequacy in retirement. So allowing people to take a big chunk of their pension fund out uh, undermines undermines that. And when we look at our contribution rates in social insurance, we're below par with where everybody across the OECD. So auto-enrolment plus our current social insurance won't even bring us up to average rate. So we really have to consider what is affordable. It, it might undermine us, you're right, but you might have people in it. You know what I mean? If you don't have the minute to begin with. Well, if it's going to be mandatory, you're in it, you're in it. <laughs> but it's not going to be mandatory, it's going to be opt-out. Well, at the moment we're discussing ideal systems and <laughs> Congress will be very much pushing for it to be mandatory. David, where, where would you stand on this? I mean, you've you got to take Fiona's point that for a lot of people, now it's very difficult to put together a, a deposit for a home, particularly in Dublin, uh, and the idea of being able to dip into your pension fund maybe to help with a deposit... For a home that perhaps you might live in for the rest of your life? Yeah, there's there's no easy answer to the question. Um, like in a way, we're starting with one hard problem, which is pensions, and we're adding on another hard problem, which is housing, and trying to solve the two of them together. Um, I just I don't think I have the answer to that. Um, generally, what you'll see around the world is people advise uh, not early access. Um, it creates a lot of complexity into the system. Take up seems to be low in countries that have it. And I think there has to be a macro point, I think. Um, you know, basically, if everyone has access to the money, you're basically in the same position as everybody else. And, and, and that's what people and economists pointed that 
you know, the impact of that does go to drive up houses, but it's a difficult issue. Okay. Let me open it up to other audience members. Who else would like to ask a, a question? Dominic Coyle, my colleague from the Irish Times. Dominic, the uh, age limit is uh, 23, and questions around how the self-employed are going to be, uh, how they're going to fare in this uh, scheme. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it comes back to a lot of what has been said here already, that uh, the more people that are excluded, the more people that are not going to be able to provide for themselves in retirement. The figures were put out, when, when the consultation document was first put out, Mercer's, I think, put out figures showing that if you exclude the 16 to 23-year-olds and you exclude everyone over 60 and you exclude the self-employed, you're excluding 675,000 people. You're only including 410,000. And that's probably yeah. the 30% of the working population, essentially. Exactly. Uh, th th this is something we've been dithering about for years. Seamus Brennan first started talking about auto-enrollment in 2006. People starting work in 2006 are close to halfway through their working lives at the moment. And we haven't even started this. And, and we're going to ramp it up to the 6%. We're not kicking in straight off at 6%, although we are moving faster than the UK did. So we need to, to get... Everybody should be in. It's a bit like people, people are advised when they, when they start out at youngsters to put, put a bit from their first paycheck into the credit union because if you don't have it, you won't notice it. And it's building up in the credit union uh, for when you need it for your house deposit or your car or whatever it might be. The same goes with pensions. If, if you tell people you've got a free ride to, to go on the beer to your 23 and then suddenly you've got to give 6% of your gross salary, by the way, remember, not, not your net salary, it's, it's about 8 or 9% of your net salary, depending on what you, what you earn. Um, that, that's a sudden wake-up call just around that same time that people are starting to make decisions about settling down, relationships, whatever else. It, it's not a good idea. And equally, there's absolutely no reason when we're all working longer that you should tell people that are after 60, sorry, you, this isn't relevant to you. It's extremely relevant to them, even if there's less time for them to, to benefit from compounding of interest. David, what about that point that too many age groups and uh, classes are being excluded? Um, yeah, I'd agree. So I think the younger people can start the better. Like we mentioned at the start that I, I started when I was 17, so it was just the day I started. You're working. a one-off though, David, come on. Well, I was put in, so. But um, no, I think as soon as people start working, if they're over the income threshold, whatever we decide that to be, that, that's when you should start. There's no need to delay it until 23. Like I suppose some of the numbers there on the numbers excluded. Like obviously if you're 21, you're not in the scheme. You will be put in the scheme when you're 23. So that cohort will get in uh, eventually. Probably the biggest group that is left out is the self-employed. Uh, and that's a more complicated agenda. But I'd be in favour of starting as young as possible. Laura, what's Ictu's position on self-employed? Well, our preference is that at least sole traders get automatically enrolled. So people that are self-employed and have no um, have, have no employees um, for a couple of reasons. One, we look at pension coverage, uh, supplementary pension covered amongst the, the, the self-employed, and it's low. We know that the, the numbers of self-employed are increasing, but Congress's main concern is that once we introduce a mandatory 6% employer contribution, it will be a further incentive for unscrupulous employers to move people onto bogus self-employed. So instead of 
keeping them in as workers, uh, registering, registering them as subcontractors. So we see that disincentive. So it will be good for the individuals, the genuine self-employed, but it will also move a perverse incentive there for um, for, for That's an interesting employers. point, David. What happens, we, we know, I won't mention any company names, but we know of a lot of uh, companies that are involved in the gig economy now. They're doing deliveries uh, from restaurants, takeaways, and so on to people's homes. Um, they're not directly employed by the company whose uh, name is on the back of their bag. Um, where, where, where do they stand uh, in all of this? Um, I think that's an area that can be legislated for, and it should be around legislation for, for contract workers. And that's so, you know, um, I, can see, I can see solutions to that. Um, like, I think the... the the difficulty maybe on the self-employed is, I suppose, for someone who is genuinely running their own business, you know, even just what is their salary, what is, what is their income, what do you apply to 6%? So it's not an easy agenda to self-employed, but I think we should be looking for ways to get as many of the self-employed and contract workers into the system as possible. Laura. So we've talked a lot about the state pension and the um, what the state pension will look like into the future and if it, if it does have a future. Well, part of that is because we the discussion focuses on what is coming out of the social insurance fund and not what's going in. And when we look at the self-employed, the self-employed are contributing social insurance rate at 4%. Now, this compares to 14.95 for PAYE workers. So if we're asking them to make um, an auto-enrolment 6%, that's still only 10%. And over the last two budgets, we've seen the self-employed being extended access to contributory job seekers, contributory uh, invalidity, treatment benefits, paternity, paternal. So the self-employed are getting a very good deal at the moment, relatively speaking, against all social risks. So a 6% contribution towards their second tier pension, in Congress opinion, isn't a big ask. Chris, should we be worried about self-employed in this game? Um, not so much. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily agree that the self-employed are well treated in this country. I mean, there's only just been a start to move their tax credits to where the PAY. There's been a recognition that there are some benefits to being self-employed, sure, via the tax system. That You know, you, you, you pay more tax, euro for euro, if you're self-employed relative to a PAYE worker. So it's not quite as, as black and white as that. But I would agree in principle, going back to what I said earlier on, I'd, I'd agree that um, in principle... 100% of people should be in this. Dominic, you want to come back in? Yeah, there's moving away really from, from the last point and talking about the importance of transparency and honesty, especially from the government when they're dealing, dealing with pensions. We all remember that when we talk about ring fencing, that Minister Noonan, when he was Minister for Finance, saw absolutely no problem whatsoever dipping into private pension pots that everyone had been assured were ring fenced to impose a pension levy. The damage that has done in terms of trust and people trusting the system is, is unreckonable. I think the, the thing about charges and transparency that Chris mentioned is also huge. I mean, it, there has been an absolute industry in making sure people do not know what they are paying in charges, not just in pensions, but in investments generally. 
And if this is going to succeed, if you want to bring people with you, especially these people who are already very skeptical about pensions, you need to be transparent. You also need to reduce complexity, having different tax relief systems for this system as against the, the private pension setup, and separately thinking, telling people that the state pension will be, you know, Maria will sort it out down the line. This, without a doubt, when the government gets this in, they will try to harmonize the existing private pension relief with this because it saves them money, and they will eventually try to persuade us that the idea all along was that this was to make up for the fact that the state pension was un unsustainable. Okay, so we a need so a, a lot points, of honesty. There's a few points there. Um, maybe, uh, Chris, we can... No, actually, I'll start with David, just on the transparency in relation to fees. Yeah, so I, I think that's, that's the easiest um, area in, in the scheme. So, you know, the, the scheme will be built to be efficient. Uh, the scheme will be built so that fees are low. The scheme will be built so fees are transparent. So, you know, they're all uh, challenge designs are, that are rightly put forward by Dominic. And I, I believe the current scheme addresses all of those. The industry fails pensioners in the past in terms of the complexity of the fees and charges that were applied. Uh, I don't believe so, no. So, like, I suppose the industry has built up uh, private savings of well over $100 billion that wouldn't exist if, if the industry wasn't there. So I think the industry has made a massive uh, contribution uh, to pensions. Um, you know, we benchmark very well internationally on charges. Uh, transparency and that has improved as the industry has, has aged, you know. So, you know, I, I won't sort of reject all criticisms that have been made against the industry, but I think the industry is in very good shape and, and does a very good job. Chris, a fair point that Dominic made about the government raiding pension uh, schemes, pension contributions, pension pots, call it what you will, uh, when the crash came, to fund the reduction in the VAT rate for the hospitality industry from 13 and a half to 11%? Ultimately, governments can do whatever they want to do. So ring fencing can only go so far. I doubt very much whether constitutionally or legally we could bind a future government into not doing something like that. But to the extent that we could, we should definitely do it. There's also the question of what is done with the money. We've got to be you know, very careful um, about who is doing investing and what the policies that they are mandated to pursue. That's why, frankly, I'd be wary about a trade union managing the money because their objectives may not be quite the same as the uh, country's objectives, you might find the money invested in certain places that you wouldn't otherwise have invested it in. Not necessarily, but it might just be the case. I think you want somebody without any vested interests at all, other than the interests of the pensioners. The international evidence wouldn't support Chris. And as I mentioned, they are trade union schemes but you contract out the investment management to a consortium of uh, uh, of uh, corporate funds. So uh, I, I would Why just... Why would that be better? Sorry, why would that be a better scheme than what's being proposed by the government? Because there would be central administration under the government scheme, wouldn't there? Um, well, well uh, it, it's the difference between a members-led fund rather than a profit-driven fund. So that's what the international evidence is showing that uh, that that has. So this would be a recruitment words. campaign for the unions, would it? Not necessarily, but if you look again, excuse me, the international evidence would show that in countries such as the Nordic countries where a job seekers allowance is voluntary and it is the trade unions are involved in uh, income protection in job seekers, they do tie in um, being a member of the job seekers fund and being a trade union member. But that also comes from people recognising that that is 
one of the founding roles of uh, trade unions is protecting the livelihoods of workers, both when they're working and into their old age. But if I could quickly come back to a point from Dominic. Very quickly. Dominic mentioned that, you know, auto-enrolment might be part of uh, as a wider scheme that further down the road we'll see a chipping away of the state pension. Um, it, within this year, we're going to get legislation that is going to benchmark the state pension to 34% of uh, the average wage and uh, index link future earnings. So the security of the state pension is going to be better than it previously was for any other generation. Auto enrolment has nothing got to do with the state pension. And well, we hold on, Chris, Chris, Chris Johns, a little earlier said that the state pension wasn't viable as it's currently uh, constructed and seemed to be suggesting that, you know, when some of us or maybe all of us here uh, get to retirement age, it won't be around. So again, that comes down to my earlier point is because the focus when we're looking at the viability of the social insurance fund that pays our state pension, the concentration has always been on what is coming out. It's not looking at what is going in and that's contribution rates both from self-employed and from the employer. We also have, we're running out of workers and that we don't have enough workers to pay for future pen pensions. And while it might seem counterintuitive, if we want to solve the pensions time bomb, we have to look at the crisis in childcare because we have the lowest rate of female okay, employment. Right. No, I don't, think we'll, I don't think we'll go down the childcare rabbit hole but, tonight. But, if you don't mind, no, we, thank, thanks for that point, but I don't, I don't think we'll go down that. We have a group route. of workers. And, and actually, there was, a, there was a triple whammy on the pension side in that the government extended the retirement age from 66 to 68. So that effectively, for those of us uh, in this room, it costs us uh, 25 grand, but there you go. It was money we never had, so we won't miss it, I suppose. Uh, Chris, you wanted to make a point. Well, the, ne the next time you hear, um, for example, a trade unionist calling for a wealth tax in this country for the first time, remember that we did have one, and that was the rate that was, you know, that was a wealth tax on on pension funds. The real politic of this fund is that ultimately, in generations' time, it will. I would forecast. I won't be around to see whether this forecast is right or wrong. Thank goodness. Um, but it will replace the state pension because ultimately the arithmetic points in that direction. Okay, do we have any more questions from the audience? The gentleman at the back. If we can just have your name and where you're from. It's, I'm Tommy Nielsen from the Association of Pension Trustees, APTI. We talk an awful lot about design here, and I just want to maybe have a question. I have a question in relation to funding. And it's this whole idea of this 662 proposal, six, six from the employer, six from, and, two from, and, sorry, and two from the state. Um, in the industry, there seems to be very quickly a consensus built that this is grant because, well, surely they leave the existing, us in the existing arrangements, we're grant because we can still get 40% tax relief. If you look at then at the constituent of the people that you're trying to auto enroll, well, people between 20,000 of earnings up to 35,000, yes, they don't get, they would, never, they would never be able to get full value of marginal rate of tax, but everybody over that. And we're also probably looking at the younger part of the population. So my question really is, a, does this not just introduce unnecessary complexity in, into the whole thing? And B, isn't it a terrible, terrible message to send to the young and the lower paid? Isn't this a yellow pack solution? Sorry for being a bit controversial there, but yes. Thank you. Uh, Chris? Well, I'll give you an equally controversial answer. It's, it's time to look very closely at uh, pension tax relief with a view to abolishing it. 
um, over time, um, perhaps, because it, it would be a big move. But um, the UK is well, well on the way to that. I think within a few years, the U- UK will have restricted pension tax relief out of existence. Um, the cap that it has on the pension pot that you can accumulate through tax relief co- contributions is a lot smaller than ours, for example. It's about half. Um, so the direction of travel has to be clear. But if you are going to go down that radical route of restricting pension relief to, to the point where it's abolished, to, to avoid this complexity as much as anything, the government is going to save an awful lot of money. And then th- this might be idealistic, but that money saved could be used to increase the contribution rate that the government makes particularly towards the lower-paid pensions. David, you're uh, disagreeing. You're nodding your head in disagreement with what Chris has just said in terms of the tax relief. Like, tax relief is very complicated. It's true the UK have thought about abolishing tax relief and they've had two goals at it. Uh, They backed off it twice because it's just actually very difficult to do. Like, tax relief is integrated with income tax and the principle of income tax is you pay tax on income when you receive it. when you're saving for a pension, you're not receiving that income now. So a change away from that like sounds like an easy thing to do, but the, the beauty of the current system is it's actually pretty simple and it's integrated with, in, with income tax. What's the size of the tax break in, in terms of relief? I mean, it's quoted at about €2 billion Euro a year. Yeah, theoretically, like the correct answer is it's zero because you're not receiving any income. You pay tax on income when you receive it, which is in return. Chris now is nodding in disagreement at that point. It's, well, maybe to be exact, but like it's a bit like saying if we increase fat to 30%, you know, what's the cost of not having a VAT rate at 30%? Like if you change any income tax, change any tax, you can increase your, increase your tax take on it. But the principle of the current system is you pay tax on your income when you receive that income. Chris, you don't, dis- you don't agree? Well, um, it's not simple. It's incredibly complicated. Um, talk to anybody that's got a PRSA. Um, I imagine many in this audience would know what a PRSA is, and that they they live overseas and talk about the complexity of taxation of your pension if you live overseas and the way in which the legislation has only recently changed in this regard, so that tax, professional tax advisors' heads are spinning and cannot explain it to themselves, let alone to other people. And that's just one small aspect of the complexity of the taxation of pensions. What was being referred to there was essentially it's tax deferred rather than tax avoided. But, you know, um, we all know the scam whereby you can pay into a pension here, move to Portugal and not pay any tax anywhere on pensions. The, the, the endless complexities loopholes are there to be exploited by everybody. And so when, when a tax system is overly complicated, there's a good rule of thumb, simplify it. Laura, what about that point about this effectively being a yellow pack uh, t- uh, pension scheme? Well, two approaches uh, Congress have uh, to this. One, we recognise that over 600,000 workers are currently receiving tax relief for pension contributions. Now, if those workers are earning over 35,000 a year, they're receiving it at 40%. So the average full-time wage is 45,000. So any reduction in the 40% tax relief would impact severely on people earning just three quarters of the average wage. And this this, this would alarm Congress. So what the way we see it is that the contribution that the state are making to auto-enrolment should match the 40% tax relief. Okay, any more questions from the floor? We have one gentleman here at the back again. You might just tell us your name and who you're with. Uh, Shane O'Farrell from Donabate. Um, a quick question about building And, up, and what do uh, they do uh, in Donabate? <laughs> and also from Irish Life. Uh, a quick question about a lot of good talk about how to build up funds, but what about at point of retirement then... What sort of model should be used for actually drawing down the funds so the pensioners can enjoy their, their hard-earned earnings? 
Chris, you want to take that first? Yeah, um, I probably have sounded more, more socialist than I've sounded in a long time tonight with some of the recommendations I make. But on this one, I'd be quite libertarian. I think once people hit 60, 65, 70, whenever the retirement age is then, um, let, them do with them, let them have the money and do what they want with it. Um, it people should be trusted to, to, to make these decisions for themselves, certainly by the time they reach that age. Um, pension freedoms, again, is, is a model that's been introduced into the UK. You can do this with a lot of your pension money in the UK now. Um, it's not been the disaster um, that everybody thought it was going to be. There have been some issues, admittedly, but give people the freedom to, to, to use the money in the way that they see fit. David? Yeah, I largely agree with that, and that system is largely here in Ireland now. Like the, the government will set up where there'll be a drawdown out of it at 5% per annum if you don't do anything, but people have, have the freedom to take out more than that, and I think that's what should continue. Laura? Congress recommendation is that the state get involved in delivering an annuity for smaller pension pots and this will be paid out as a top-up payment on the state pension. So more or less bringing back the old system of the pay-related pension. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps us up on the pensions topic. I think it would be rude um, not to ask Chris Johns, given that he has spent most of the past couple of years writing about Brexit in his very fine weekly column in the Irish Times, not to, uh, n- not to ask for his view on how the next uh, six or seven weeks are going to go as the clock ticks down uh, to March 29th, uh, which is Brexit Day. Chris, are we going to have a deal or not? On March the 27th, they'll realise that they haven't got one. And um, th- they will say, we're going over the cliff edge, but um, in order to get everybody ready for the cliff, it'll be the end of June, not March the 29th. Right. Okay. Well, I think that is succinct. And that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to David Harney, uh, Dr. Laura Bambrick, and Chris Johns for their contributions on the panel tonight. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. And my thanks also to Irish Life for hosting us in this very fine venue here this evening and to all of you, our audience, uh, for coming here and for your engagement. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox from the Irish Times by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. Uh, We'll be back in studio next week with more up-to-date coverage of the business world. But uh, I'm Kieran Hancock, and for now, that's it. Take care.